Hello everyone and welcome to Romaniacs where we're back with another one of those cox blocking weeks. It's 2pm <laughs> on Wednesday the 13th of March. Parliament has just resoundingly defeated Theresa May's deal for the second time. Today the Commons votes on a no-deal Brexit and tomorrow on an extension of Article 50. This all follows a bizarre day in which Attorney General Geoffrey Cox returned from his renegotiation trip to Brussels with major changes to the backstop, which turned out mainly to be changing the font and type size of the backstop. <laughs> we are in the very eye of the storm. I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me to do the Emily Maitlis side-eye at Brexit for the next hour or so are two of our regulars. The writer, broadcaster, expert on Brexit and digital disinformation, and owner of a German passport, Nina Schick. Hello, Nina. How are you? Great, great. I'm feeling relatively... Buoyant after the events of last night mm. because they were, of course, entirely inevitable. It's been really interesting to watch the EU reaction and how in Westminster none of that seems to be filtering through. So I think, what is it? We're on Malthouse Compromise 2.0. B, B, uh, not B. How could you possibly uh, get it wrong? Uh, yeah. That does sound like a beer, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and fresh from Nall Nigel in the Commons, his body now consisting of 75% off-brand energy drink and 25% vape fluid. <laughs> <laughs> Ian Dunn, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello. Uh, you had a lively exchange with Nikki Morgan on Twitter mm. uh, as you were trying to oh, understand yes. her mysterious ways. Yeah, I didn't get very far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, I'm, but I'm you didn't expect because you didn't like at her. You presumably did not expect her to come I back and go. You really could just at, ask me. Yeah, I never really at people. I find it a bit. Even when I'm praising them, I find it a bit funny in that British way of like, well, don't say anything nice to someone in front of their fucking face. That's just crazy, you know. That's uncivil. And I certainly don't do it when I'm attacking them because I don't. You know, one poll. You know, it's basically. But I still reserve the right to comment on yeah, yeah. the adequacy of the politicians that we have. Which is what I did in, in her case, and just say, you know, if anyone can work out what the fuck it is she's playing at, then maybe they could inform me, because I certainly have no idea. Um, and she did get in contact, and we had an exchange, and at the end of it I thought, I still have no idea what the fuck it is you're playing at. Do you get a lot of people responding, a lot of MPs? Being yeah, like, you, so those kind of things will often be a sort of DM thing of like, oh, let me inform you as to what I'm... Blah, blah, blah. And I'm not very good at that sort of game, because the, cause the lobby's based on that sort of communication really and mm. then lots of backpanning you know you do me this favour here essentially the unspoken rule between the journalists and the politicians is you know maybe give me some good coverage here or maybe I'd like you to talk about this as if it wasn't coming from me over here and would is that how it works who would have known, right? <laughs> <laughs> would have known. and I fucking hate you're always going definitely put my name in <laughs> <laughs> make sure they know it came from me. and I, so I really quite dislike that and I don't really like playing that game so I'm not particularly great at it Really, <laughs> the whole political journalism thing—not not so hard. <laughs> but I like, uh, you know, Nikki. Like, I don't understand it at all. But Nikki Morgan's new Warpath mode, where she's just like, "Fuck DMs, let's just do it here. Let's just <laughs> let's have it out here in the car park." <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, she was up there yesterday with the small house B shit on the stairs with yeah. this it, sort of like album cover from like from like a sort of covers band from some small village well, in the seventies. Someone said they look like a uh, garbage reunion. <laughs> Shirley Manson. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is bleak, man. What is she? What is she doing there? I do not floundering. understand. Floundering. She's just floundering. floundering. Yeah. Everything. There's a lot of floundering going on. There's a lot of. There will be a lot of floundering as we talk about the only topic in town uh, this week. Also with us are two very special guests. Leila Moran is the Lib Dem MP for Oxford West and Abingdon. She's been a leading voice of the People's Vote campaign, including many appearances at rallies. She's been tipped as a future leader of the Lib Dems, and she grew up in Belgium, Greece, Ethiopia, Jamaica and Jordan because her dad, James Moran, was an EU diplomat. Hi, Leila. Welcome to Romania. Hi. How was your day yesterday? Oh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like 
this week is about like let's make some progress so we did yesterday we voted down the deal and you know today's about getting no deal off the table so we're going to do that but I kind of feel like we've done this before and so unless unless tomorrow we definitely vote through an extension we're back to square one again and I just have this I think I'm traumatised a little by the whole thing now what, what was the vibe like at, at the Commons it, 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 like it didn't seem like a fun place to be are people are people sort of worn out fractures confused oh honestly uh, the it's a really weird atmosphere so I, I, I've got this locker that um, I use in the, in the corridors near the chamber and Steve Barkley was there and I said hey how are you and he just looked at me and had his arms sort of wide open I was like oh, yeah I should really shouldn't ask you that should I <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's actually kind of got to the point where you're starting to see some of the humanity behind it all and everyone is just genuinely exhausted uh, I've definitely like been losing sleep over all of this I'm sure I'm not the only MP that is um and it's definitely beginning to take a toll on people's health. You know, the fact that Theresa May's voice is gone is a surprise to no one. A lot of people sort of feel that tired. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, that doesn't mean we stop. You know, we, 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 are, we have to do our jobs. And that means getting through the other side, whatever it may look like. And I'm sure everyone will agree that we just shouldn't have bloody done this in the first place, should we? <laughs> Controversial at the top of the hour. <laughs> but OK, I'll go with it. Uh, and it's another hands-across-the-sea moment as we welcome one of our brothers in podcasting to the show. Tim McEnany co-presents the highly entertaining and informative podcast The Irish Passport, which we all wish we could have. He's a lecturer in <laughs> British and Irish cultural history at the Université Paris-Oui in Saint-Denis, hotbed of Michel Foucault, 1968 and all that. He specialises in 18th, 19th and 20th century history. It's like a three-for-one. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they need to hire more teachers. <laughs> <laughs> all of it. He's just said all of the history. And he co-presents the Irish Passport with journalist Naomi O'Leary. Hi, Tim. Thanks for coming on the show. That's lovely to be here. One quick point. We accidentally allowed mention of the mainland a couple of weeks ago when we had hmm. the South Belfast MLA Claire Hanna on the podcast. <laughs> so we have to put a pound in the uh, Northern Ireland swear jar. I mean, it depends on which island you're talking about. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so you take the longer view, as, we, as we've heard. Um, does this week feel uh, like a historic moment you, you know as a, as a historian is that i mean we, we hear a lot about what future historians will say but do you do you kind of think oh actually this is i'm living through something which is going to be a like a, a lot of books <laughs> at some point god i mean what a question uh, there's been so many moments like this and the, there's been so many moments that have been held up as the turning point and the the cornerstone of something that's to become um uh, you know either that's this is going to be it or or you know it's going to be just another one in the litany of these turning points um i think something maybe about it that might be uh, most relevant historically is maybe just the coming up against reality that this represents you know like facing off with reality and reality has come through the door and there's just no way to ignore it anymore Mm. I hope so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we'll be talking more about all of that later on before we start don't forget you can see Romaniacs plus some of the best politics talk shows and James Dellingpoles at the podcast live (laughs) politics day in London on Sunday the 7th of April I'll be joining Nina making her live debut plus Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu for our slot at this one day podcast festival there's been new additions to the lineup, as well as Ian Dale and Jackie Smith's For the Many and Red Box from The Times. The new European podcast, Politico's EU Confidential, and our arch rivals, Brexit Cast, will be on too. And we're in a deadly running order clash with Chopper's Brexit podcast from The Telegraph. Just like when you had to choose between Queens of the Stone Age and Cool in the Gang at Glastonbury. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know which one we are. <laughs> Tickets are on sale now at podcastlive.com. Patreon supporters get a discount on day tickets as well as admission to the Romaniacs show. And if you're not backing us on Patreon yet, search Patreon Romaniacs or go to our Facebook page to fill the void in your life. 
That's podcastlive.com for tickets to Podcast Live and search Petra and Romaniacs to back us and help us continue our valuable work. So, Ian, I've, I've got just one question, which is, what's happening? <laughs> uh, can you, can you whiz us through what happened yesterday, which, as Nina said, was uh, in sort of entirely predictable? Yeah, I mean, I think it was. There wasn't ever any real sign that the EU were going to fundamentally change anything. Um, Cox went off with a series of ideas, most of which were around the idea of, of bad faith. So let's so if you take the back something, there's basically two approaches to it now, two concerns, right? The first one would be what about the good faith problems? Good faith problems is you said you want an open border, you said you want complete control of your regulations and your tariffs. Now those two things do not work together. You can't have the same thing. The Brexit solution to that is we're gonna come up with an imaginary sci-fi world or we're gonna invent a bunch of new shit. And the EU response to that was fine. But if the imaginary sci-fi shit doesn't work, then the backstop will apply. The bad faith argument is, what if the EU are a bunch of fiendish demons who are trying to keep us trapped in this hellish backstop against our will because they think that's the best way that you can essentially create a de facto customs union by virtue of sort of, you know, British slavery. And that is a conspiracy theory. It's never been what they wanted. I had glimpses at the beginning when it first came out. I thought, you know, there is a chance that they could see this as like the way of pushing you into the customs union. Over and over again, the Europeans are told, the backstop is not a very pleasant situation for us either. We would rather it doesn't go that way, and we have a formalised structure to how we approach this, which would involve a customs union. They overwhelmingly would prefer that to be the case. All of Cox's stuff was about dealing with the bad faith element, the conspiracy theory stuff. So essentially, he was fighting a battle in this mystical land over shit that was never going to fucking happen anyway, and based on these sort of feverish conspiracy theories. He didn't touch the actual problem with the backstop, which is that in the timescale that you're looking at, given that these technological solutions do not exist, you will fucking fall into it, and you will struggle to get out until you start saying, we're going to be a member of the single market and the customs union, blah, blah, blah. So he comes back with this deal that's all based on bad faith and then he has to say of course by virtue of his own standing and i suspect by the way because he has an eye on the future inquiry which will one day take place on this in much the same way that it's mm. taken place on iraq and he, he remembers how the fucking legal advice went down there of saying well okay fine but i do have to admit you know nothing's actually fundamentally changed we can't unilaterally exit and him saying that in the morning just shot a bullet through the heart of the deal that just bled out over the afternoon with the eurosceptic lawyers and their laughably titled fucking star chamber you might notice the way that the names get more preposterous every yeah. single fucking the danger day. room the, day, right? and the ideas get worse and the names get more exciting it's like almost in direct parallel um, and after that, the DUP, and then by the end of it, Theresa May, voice gone, rain pelting down outside, barely any of her MPs bothering to even fucking That's turn right. up to watch her humiliation. The cabinet itself barely bothering to turn up, uh, literally unable to speak by the end of this thing, then gets another absolute hammering. She barely, she couldn't even put herself in a position where she could say, look, I might be able to do this on a third heave, because... Yeah. It, it, she hadn't made enough movement mm. even where she was so you know another day of routine fucking dreadful humiliation for a terrible prime minister who's well, still there who's is, still is there is that incredible yeah, we'll thing we'll be there forever oh, no. <laughs> we'll never ever go <laughs> um well, you mentioned that third heave. Um, Laura Kunzberg raised the prospect the deal might come back for a third meaningful vote. Uh, it's it's rare that the third instalment in the trilogy is the best one. <laughs> um, but Terminator. 
Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you may be the minority of one on that one. I love that. Bringing all the controversies today. <laughs> you don't really mean that, that no, you I put don't. Terminator 3 about no, the content. One and two, though, is sort of quite parallel, I think. Uh-huh. Anyway. So, so do we think the deal could, could uh, like the Terminator, <laughs> live again? It is a bit like and, that. And come back? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Theresa May, despite kind of all the odds, is still standing. And fundamentally, given that we just have, you know, over two weeks before automatic extension of law, we crash out without a deal. This is still the only deal that's on the table uh, as far as the EU is concerned, unless the UK is significantly going to change its red lines, which it doesn't look like is going to happen anytime soon. So this is the best chance for an orderly Brexit. The only other possibilities are no deal Brexit or a revocation of Article 50 um, or an extension of Article 50. If it's an extension of Article 50, you're just essentially kicking the can down the road. So it's still possible that, you know, come the third time that now MPs not willing and a lot of MPs voted against the deal and were hoping that other MPs would vote for the deal so that the deal would pass. But, you know, they've kind of painted themselves into a political corner so that they can't vote for the deal, but they still don't want a no deal. Let's not forget that a parliament voting against no deal today actually doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you vote for no deal as much as you want, but unless you take the actual concrete measures to stop no deal from happening, which in this case is either revocation or extension, no deal is happening on March 29th at 11pm. Because I remember actually when the first vote you know, failed for Theresa May, that mm-hmm. there was that we were talking about the possibility that second time around it would pass because people would feel more sort of scared to the cliff edge. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, mm-hmm. the cliff isn't edgy enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Leila, do you find that, I mean, you know, just from sort of, you know, talking to people or mm. looking at their sad faces um, across the floor, <laughs> I mean, is this is this a sort of great, is this a really kind of like, is everyone taking this sort of burden of responsibility uh, very seriously? Because it seems like, you know, the, the, the talk has changed between some people blame, you know, most people blame the government, some people blame Labour position, but it seems like it's become a problem for sort of the whole of Parliament. I think that's in some ways part of the reason why the impasse is not going to change, because actually I think everyone is taking this extremely seriously. And they're thinking about it in the context of both their constituencies and the country. And when you are thinking in those terms, I mean, I've never been more sure that we should not be leaving the European Union. Mm. And that currently, I think, and this is what we we also need to answer the question, you know, what would we extend for? I do Mm. think that, you know, putting it back in a sort of ratification referendum with the option to stay is the only choice, I think, that's going to break this. So I'm kind of and I'm standing firm and I'm standing firm and people are saying, why aren't you compromising? And, for, you know, what if you accidentally no deal or whatever? No, I'm bloody standing firm because I would not be able to look anyone in the eye and say that I helped to do anything that was damaging to them and their families and our economy. So that's why I'm standing firm. And I think that's the same reason why other people are, too. And it's why I think the only logical way out of this remains some kind of involvement of the public what I'm really hoping is that we don't have a general election because I'm not convinced that that's going to actually fix anything Mm. it could but I don't think that's going to happen and I still think that a a referendum with that versus remain still is the most logical outcome now Mm. 
I think we could honestly if 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 Jeremy Corbyn knew what the fuck he was doing, I think we could be there now on the referendum. I think honestly, you look at him yesterday. <clears throat> the stuff goes down. He he basically says nothing. He's like he like a piece of paper crumpling it. into itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh. And he doesn't even mention the thing. Now you look at the Carl Amendment that haven't brought forward so far, which is basically to say we'll support the Prime Minister's deal on condition of ratification by the country. And you sort of think, right now, that is not so far away from being something that people might actually be able to get behind. Mm. Once you have Labour support in the back, I think you'd lose two, maybe three dozen Labour MPs, three dozen sort of max probably. You could, I think you could easily get over enough Conservatives to say, well, fuck it, that is a way out. Hmm. And on that proposition, yeah. plus uh, petitioning for extension from the EU with a very clear idea of what it is that we're trying to do, most of the noises I would suggest would suggest that you would say yes to that. So right now would be the moment that if Labour was pressing for it, I actually think it would be a credible, doable thing. But they're not. He didn't, as you say, he didn't, he didn't even, even say the words. It. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, well, some Corbyn supporters have suggested to me that the, the the threat of an election could persuade May to to erase her red lines and work with Labour to reopen negotiations, <laughs> softer Brexit. Um, Unicorns this, in the stable, anybody? This would involve the reopen negotiations without a major change, without a general election or a new referendum. Is, is there sort of, is there anything in this? I suppose what, what Barry Gardner on Newsnight was sort of gesturing towards. Is, is there any prospect? What is this Labour plan? Okay, well, I think, look, if you were, if, if you had a majority in the Commons to try and pursue it, I do think you could you could do that within the time frame because they're not talking about opening up the withdrawal agreement, the legal text. They're just talking about opening up the future relationship document. And in that context, if you have an extension, let's say even to July 1st, I don't think it's completely impossible that you could actually have something that would get those words into the future relationship document. I, that that actually does seem to be to be sort of broadly doable, even a, a longer one on that basis. The thing is, how would you get to the point where that was the instruction to the government? And but then we don't know, right? Because there's been no indicative votes because the government hasn't allowed us to test the waters of what could. I'm just potentially really get not sure. Support. Everyone keeps talking about this. I'm just utterly unsure what indicative votes would do because we know what people think behind the scenes. Like it's really clear. There's there's a bunch of different options, none of which are going to actually if there was one clear thing, or even close to a clear thing, it would already be racing ahead. But do you I just think, really don't instance, think indicative votes are going to get us anywhere. What, what if there was one on membership of the customs union? Because I think you could you could definitely make the case that there is existing right now yeah, potentially a majority know, in the Commons. We already know there's a majority in the Commons for that. Well, then the, 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 problem was, the problem is that the, the, the reason why we haven't had them, and the reason why I don't think they're going to help, is because Theresa May won't change her red line. She's just that obstinate and that's the problem we need a change of personality from the prime minister to make anything that indicative votes might but do but isn't that they, they would be part of the mechanism of forcing because they're basically the parliament saying to the executive we are instructing you to now follow this it's essentially wrestling control from the in executive. the same way that we instructed quote unquote to take no deal off the table whenever it was weeks ago now like mm -hmm. I, unless it's in legislation unless it is government time that's bringing forward these motions that are binding on the government in Indicative, the word suggests, right? It's not binding. No, of course it's not binding, but what it does do is give a very clear and undeniable and demonstrable declaration of Parliament's view. And on that basis, Which she that will does, then thoroughly ignore well, as she has done. But it does change the dynamic. And you're right, she may well try to do that. I think I'm it's sorry, very I'm likely so that she would try. <laughs> but, it, but it certainly doesn't mean that you don't give it a shot. And we're definitely in the world right now of let's start giving things a shot because the circumstances are rather severe. Would anyone like to take a shot at explaining... Um, the ERG's 
Oh God! <laughs> Position it because it seems like it seems like they've become sort of the Remainers' greatest asset. Because yeah. if they were less fanatical, they would have gone. Brexit would have happened by now. They would have had, mm. and it just seems like they they are the main obstacles to the thing that they want because the because the the version that of the thing they want is not satisfactory, and they want something essentially impossible. And it just I seems think a lot of them are just mad. a bit thick, honestly. Like, I genuinely oh, think there's a no one's speaking about Nadine Doris. In no, not no. I didn't name. I named no names. But like, you're right. You're right. Their position is completely illogical. I wouldn't dare want to put myself into John Redwood's head. Dear God, what you would find. But um, I do think the bigger question here actually is about the DUP and what's their motivation. And the DUP thrive in chaos. Anything that creates chaos is good politically back home in Northern Ireland for the DUP. And so I don't see a world where they do vote for the deal. They will keep hanging on until the text is changed in the withdrawal agreement. They will, you know, which flirt. Will be. <laughs> yeah, which it won't be. So they will flirt with no. it. They'll do whatever. And, and I think the ERG are basically following the DUP on this. Yeah. And I mean, it is simply astounding that they won't vote for the deal because it is a really hard Brexit that Theresa May is mm-hmm. proposing. Mm. You know, the future kind of political uh, f- the f- political future is one where we're out of the customs union, we're out of the single market, you know, those red lines. So, I mean, it's insane that they might have overplayed their hands so much that there is a potential now that there's, you know, some kind of movement to a cross-party uh, movement to have like an future declaration saying we're going to remain in the customs union. Why on earth would the ERG not vote for this? Because as it is right now, it's set up perfectly to negotiate towards an association agreement or, you know, a Canada-style FTA that they're declaring that they want. Moreover, I mean, the logical inconsistency, you know, there are problems with the backstop when they say, you know, they say the backstop doesn't even need to be there. If they're so confident that this technology exists, then why are they so afraid of the backstop? Because according to their own logic, it will never have to be triggered. So I think, you know, they're not one for logical thought. We just put it that way. And I think they might have overplayed their hand unless they're really pushing. And I I believe that a lot of ERG MPs are true believers in no deal Brexit. They Mm. really believe that that is the best outcome for the country. And it's really astonishing to me to see how that kind of glib assertion that you hear them repeating over and over again is now starting to have sway with public opinion. Um, it's 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 really alarming. It's really alarming. Yeah, Tim. A lot of people didn't see that the um, the Irish border would become this crucial issue. Hmm. That we would be using the word backstop quite so much. Sure. Um, was this something that obviously this is more very much in your wheelhouse? And was this something that you know during the referendum campaign was it something where you were thinking, oh, actually people should be talking more about this because this is going to be a problem. Yeah, I'm like to put it mildly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you did you tweet the occasional comments? To this? <laughs> Listen, I mean, um, um, myself my, and my colleague Naomi O'Leary, uh, who is a journalist, it felt like we were banging our heads against a brick wall with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think everyone uh, in in Ireland, it, we're, we're put in this very unusual position um, during the referendum because it was like you could see a bus coming at full speed um, and nobody was listening yeah. you know um, people were saying things like 
that bus is no problem and that Keep trying to read what was on the side of it as it <laughs> came towards them <laughs> absolutely yeah I mean like let's put that in perspective um, nobody talked nobody talked about the, the border be, during the referendum not in any way satisfactorily no. anyway no. Um, nobody knew who the DUP were either before they came into power their, their website crashed on the day that they yes, were voted into power because right, yeah. so many people were googling <coughs> them uh, we interviewed um, one man John Tonge his name is who had written a book about the DUP and you know nobody cared at the time but it was about 10 years ago and it was a bestseller suddenly um, you know all these journalists were ringing us up saying who are these people and then even worse I mean I think everyone's mouth dropped in um, certainly in the Republic of Ireland and amongst, amongst the nationalist community uh, in Northern Ireland when uh, the DUP were in Westminster because the feeling was do you do you have any idea what mm. you're dealing with here? <laughs> yeah. um, and it starts to come out that, you know, this involves creationists and, you know, yep. anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage, virulently anti, um, anti-gay marriage, anti, anti-gay. Um, you know, like, just really, really at odds with the mainstream of both Ireland and um, the UK. Uh, so, yeah, the, the border issue, I, um, I think, so you have this bus coming full on, but n- even worse... Nobody is surprised. Nobody in Ireland was surprised that people were downplaying the bus. Um, and it's this very sad, uh, inescapable kind of um, tragedy that's unfolding yeah. here. Mm. Um, because w- there is a cultural power dynamic involved here. Um, for decades, well, so as lo- since really the end of the Troubles in particular, um, Ireland has gone out of the consciousness uh, in the UK, which is, which is absolutely fine. Um, you know, um, better to have no use than bad news. Um, however, out, as it went out of the consciousness, so did really, really, really basic facts about Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, we did an episode called The Knowledge Gap, um, exploring this phenomenon. And on one level, you know, this is the knowledge gap in the UK about very, very basic things about Ireland, like is Ireland in the UK? <laughs> is Northern Ireland in the UK? Hmm. Is the Republic of Ireland an independent state? Um, this, these are facts not about a foreign country. Mm. These are facts about the UK. And people who don't know if Northern Ireland is in the UK or not, or vice versa, literally don't know where their own country is. And when you bring it down to those brass tacks, it's strange. It's actually very unusual that people know so little about Northern Ireland. I'm pretty sure people I mean, knew what they were voting for. <laughs> <laughs> we've been, we've, we've been told this. They knew every single at the time. They thought it all through and yeah. they were just like, no, we're fine. So this was it, exactly. We knew that when, um, every, I mean, 90% of the time when we met someone from the UK, they had at best a hazy understanding of what was going on here. How on earth? Could they be expected to know <laughs> what what was in the what was in the works um, for a potential Brexit? Um, we were talking to uh, Matthew O'Toole. He, he was yeah. um, he used to work in Downing Street, and yeah. he was there on the night of the um, uh, of the vote. And he was explaining how really they could during the referendum they couldn't bring up Northern Ireland. It was just too complex, and people people's base knowledge was too low. Mm. And what were they going to do? I mean, it, like even to give a, a very basic history. You'd have to like sit people down for an hour, and they had eight weeks but, uh, yeah. to tell the entire population about this. But this is so astonishing. Let's not forget that the Northern Ireland Secretary during the referendum, Theresa Villiers, was a Brexiteer, mm. and she said tech, quote unquote, would solve the solution. The current Northern Ireland, Ireland Secretary only said a few weeks ago mm. that she didn't realise that people voted along sectarian lines in Northern Ireland. I mean, she is a freaking cabinet minister, for God's sake. It's kind of amazing so how can you expect to people to understand this when, you know, a cabinet minister's whose sole responsibility is for Northern Ireland doesn't even grasp the sectarian nature of politics but it's like the, in the region. You know, Grayling is obviously the epitome of this, but it's kind of, politics is, it's, there's no other job like 
politics where it's possible to be the Northern Ireland Secretary and not and never get asked. There's never like an interview no. where someone just goes, no, do you being, know being an anything MP. about Northern Ireland? <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how democracy works. It's interesting. I, I published for each of the uh, times I stood my CV. Because I was like, well, you guys are voting to give me a job, so I'm going to publish my CV, and you can and you can ask me anything about it, and la la. How far did I go back? Right. Did you include your GCSE results? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's so many people who who lead these departments who know absolutely nothing. And um, when I when I, I I'm a teacher and I've got my masters in comparative education. When I then became spokesperson for education for my party, the teaching profession was hilarious. They were like, "Is she allowed?" <laughs> <laughs> she actually knows. <laughs> so, uh, Ian, are there any surprises? Were there any surprises yesterday? People who kind of flipped to supporting the deal that we didn't expect. Yeah, Anybody yeah. who impressed yeah. you? Yeah. What? No, nobody impressed me. Um, <laughs> Hard to impress. D- David Davis uh, flipped to support the deal. I thought that was. Interesting. Uh, extremely surprising to me. <laughs> um, Nadine Doris flipped. I mean, you never really know what the fuck she's up to. So, or if, I'm not entirely sure that she understands. So, you know, so that could have gone either way. Um, in terms of the moments that were really happening in the Commons, I don't think I saw that many fantastic speeches. I started to get this sense after a while of just. It was sort of like, it felt like you mentioned earlier. Mm. No, I just sort of felt like, is this? I, I can't even remember how many times this has happened now. Mm. And I go over, and even the ones that I really like, like Dominic Grieve or something, does a speech, Ken Clark does a speech, and I think, like, that was a really good speech, but I, I have actually kind of seen you do that speech. Yeah. And the guys that I really don't like, you know, Patterson or whatever, they, they do their speech, and I'm like, oh, I've seen that speech a lot of fucking times as well. Yeah. And so I thought, has it been four, six, eight times that we've yeah. gone through this on an almost fortnightly basis? And then I just yeah. thought, Am I in purgatory? Like, have I yeah. done something terrible? It's, is it just me alone? Is this what purgatory day. is? Yeah. yeah. So it just so after a while, you just kind of stop paying attention. She only manages to shift over a few. She barely managed to shift. Over. I think there was one or two ERGs mm. who moved. So ultimately, that there wasn't much there to give you any hope that things would fundamentally. But the Labour Party firmed up too. So, so that's th- true, those, actually, those, yeah. those yeah. you know, 60, 70 MPs who were going to vote for the deal because of the bribes and whatever else that she's been throwing at mm. them didn't materialise. I and think I Caroline think... Flint was the only flip over, yeah. wasn't she? Because I don't think she supported it. Health check on this one, but I don't think she supported it the first time round. It doesn't she surprise me if that time. is true. Yeah, yeah, it would be in yeah. line with the kind of commentary yeah. that she's made, all she, of which has been catastrophically bad. We've, we've just had something uh, come through on Twitter.com from Tom Newton Dunn, uh, who says, I hear an interesting move. Not, he's not literally addressing us. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Romanians. <laughs> um, no, I hear an interesting move is afoot by Tory DUP Labour Brexiter MPs tabling a joint amendment to rule out a second referendum in principle for Thursday's voting. Plan is to spike people's votes guns early. Um, would this uh, nefarious would plot? It won't get called. Yeah, I don't I'm know if it would get. That. I don't know if it would get called. Was it, do you mean for? T- would that be for today's vote or for tomorrow's, tomorrow's vote? For, t- for yeah, tomorrow's vote. Okay. okay. I mean, I'm sure they'll be willing to give it a try. Look, at the moment, the main thing is trying to concentrate on what. What are the amendments going to be today? Um, the Morehouse B one is, I mean, c- catastrophically stupid. Um, and again reiterates this idea that it can only really be credible if you haven't paid any attention to what is going on in Brussels or listened to anyone else. It's basically to say, we'll offer the EU the money and in exchange they'll give us a standstill sort of transition that'll go on for two years or whatever. Now, <laughs> and then Barnier was like, start, nope. Yeah, exactly. He's, literally, he <laughs> he's literally said no. They can't be any clearer about yeah. this. And I know that there is a tendency, especially among sort of Remain sympathetic journalists, to take all of the things that are said by Brussels as stone tablets from on high that are definitely true. And they're not always. Okay, so we need to be critical. But in this case, 
they have not budged an inch on that. That is the stuff that we owe them from financial decisions that were taken within this window. And it is not something that you can dangle in front of them that are going to make them sit down for talks. That simply will not happen. The fact they're coming up with it now is very depressing. The backup to that then is their fucking Article 24 of the GATT nonsense, which is to say you have by international law a right to have 10 years of standstill transition. Now, there's two things on that that are the only two things you need to know. The first one is it's not unilateral. It's about two parties coming to a deal. It is literally a deal proposition. So to suggest it for a no-deal scenario Mm. is so wrong that it's 100% full-spectrum wrong. You couldn't get more wrong. Secondly, it requires a detailed plot for where you're going and the timetable that you're going to get there. Neither of those things apply, so it cannot be used. All of the Malthouse stuff is just complete and utter nonsense. How much time have you wasted thinking and writing about plans and amendments that would never... Yeah, work. it fucking sucks, man. And then, like, so yesterday morning, because I was quite drunk when they came up with the with when they came back at, on, at midnight or whatever on the Monday with with the the updated deal. So I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to make fucking head or tail of this right now. I'm quite sloshed. So I woke up at like six a.m. and you start like looking at the stuff and writing it down. And even as you write it, you're like, I know that this probably won't matter in about twelve hours' mm. time. And so you get a real sense of the genuine pointlessness of knife. And so thank you so much to the Brexiters <laughs> for that existential lesson that they've given me alongside all of the political. <laughs> well, I, w- I, wanna, I want to end this uh, section with, um, with two poetic quotes which sum up where we are. With, uh, Tory MP Steve Double saying May's deal was a polished turd, but it may be the best turd we've got. <laughs> We're reduced to ranking turds. <laughs> and Julian Lewis channeling the spirit of a 90s chill-out room conversation, leaving the ERG meeting saying, the mood is realistic, but what is reality? Yeah, that was good. That, was like that, that, that is philosophical. That's amazing. Layla Moran, MP for Oxford West and Abingdon and Lib Dem Education Spokesperson, is our special guest today. Layla, when you, when you set out to become an MP, did you think, I cannot wait to talk about nothing but Brexit <laughs> for the next few years? Definitely what, not. <laughs> what are we... I mean, in, in, in your brief, what are we missing? What, oh, in God. an imaginary, magical world where Brexit wasn't taking up all the oxygen in the room, mm. would we be discussing in that area well i mean education funding occasionally gets so bad that it did sort of break through in the news this week Mm. and i was so happy it did because i was like come on yes these are the big issues that we need to start talking about i've got schools in my area who are you know consulting on going down to four days a week and yet why is this not that that's a national crisis when we can't afford to educate our population anymore that's an enormous crisis so i mean that's the sort of basics of it but then i mean I, i i was a teacher before i came into i taught maths and physics and then uh, did my masters and became a Lib Dem because I very geekily like compared research versus party policy and they were closest <laughs> and that's why I chose the Liberal Democrats and <laughs> discovered later that yeah I share other values but that was it was very 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 uber logical way of choosing a political party which is very weird and geeky and um, and yeah I've got there's so many things that we need to be looking at so many things and the reason why I went into politics was because what I realised was the research was all pointing in one direction of things we should be doing, like not selecting at too early, you know, thinking about how we do our curriculum and how we 
over test kids and how that's actually the opposite thing if we really want a more equal society where people actually learn to at the very least read and write we still have kids who leave our education system unable to read and write it's a, it's a scandal and we're not addressing any of it right now and yeah I'm highly frustrated <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean the Lib Dems are the only party to you know actively oppose Brexit um, yet sort of continue to languish in the polls obviously underperformed badly in the in the last general election what? Why do you think that is? When obviously there is such an intense mm. kind of uh, appetite for opposition to Brexit, and, and what can they do? Can you, your party, do yeah. to regain the initiative? Yeah. So no, I know, and it's so frustrating, right? Because I think the last election was intensely frustrating because I, I did win, but we did it by you know basically a rainbow coalition of voters. So the Greens uh, stood aside, and uh, loads of Labour party members, frankly, also vote because they understand first past the post. We really, really mm. had to get them on board. But in other parts of the country, and actually that vote was replenished by lots of young people who thought that Corbyn was backing Remain and mm. and thought that he was going to be the saviour of all of this and, and totally mislabeled the Labour Party. And I, I feel so sad for them because a lot of them are now like all over Twitter going, I'm just so annoyed with the Labour Party. So I think that's one of the big dynamics that happened at the last election but we gotta admit like there's a huge hangover from coalition that I just don't think we're, we're over yet so you know what can I do well we've talked about education like I've got to come up with some you know really really good policy in that kind of when Brexit's over please God <laughs> when Brexit's over you know people are going to be looking around at the landscape and go right who's got the big ideas who's got the next big ideas and uh, yeah that's how that's how I'm applying myself I want a whole new education system changed very slowly hmm. Will it require a new leader, do you think, to well, refresh? Good. We're going to have a new leader. Yeah, I mean, Vince has said that he's going to step down at some stage when Brexit is resolved. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so never. <laughs> well, I don't know. So not, and that's the thing. Yeah. Um, we don't know when that's going to be. Um, but we will have a new leader, and that will be an enormous opportunity for us to sort of in, keep reinventing ourselves. You've got a conference coming up this weekend where we're going to start. So it's a scheme where... You know, people can support us rather than join us. And one of the things I've noticed, certainly in Oxford West and Abingdon, like the people who canvassed for me, people who'd never canvassed before, share our values, very happy to have me as their MP, won't join. But actually, how do we engage with people who just don't want to feel like they need a membership card to define their politics? And I think that's where politics is moving to. Most people just don't buy into a team. Um, and I did because I wanted to be an MP, but I'm not sure even if, if I decided not to, I'm not sure I would have necessarily joined a political party, if that makes sense. I'd have been an activist. I'd have been, you know, right there and doing all the, probably the, uh, the you know, people's vote stuff and all the rest of it. I'm not convinced that everyone wants to join a political party and we need to cater for that now. Have you had any contact from the independent group? <clears throat> uh, yeah, so we're, we, you know, the thing is, a lot of these guys are really friendly with us anyway, right? So <laughs> Chucker and I helped to launch the People's Vote together. Of course, yeah. Um, you know, Joe knows uh, Anna really well from, uh, they worked in coalition together, right? <laughs> so uh, there's loads of connections that we already have. A, a lot of the reasons why uh, people are saying, you know, same ground, is if you look at their sort of mission statement so far, most of it, except for national service, I think, which was an interesting throw in there, um, is most of it's lived in policy already. So there's a huge amount of crossover. Would you have to have a kind of, um, either, whether a merger or a sort of non-aggression pact? That's just probably like... Non-aggression pact. Historically, that's a bad phrase. That's not what they call no. it. <laughs> Not, they're not going to no. divide up Poland. It's something else. <laughs> but the standing aside, thing, because it, I mean, it seems like yeah. if you had Lib Dems and Tig 
candidates going head to head, that would be bad news for both. Well, that's just, it's a reflection of the first past the post system. And it's the reason why in Oxford, West and Abingdon, we had to have those conversations with the Greens. We had to sort of make it work. Hmm. I think we're in really early days about how that would work. And at the moment, like, I mean, some of them, as I say, I, I know-ish. Not that well. I mean, I'm a brand new MP, so don't know them that long. But then there are others who I'd never heard of before and then realised that, like, Joan Ryan fronted the No to AV campaign for mm. the Labour Party. Like, if, if really, are we going to stand aside for someone who doesn't share our basic values? In the Like, Liberal Democrats love proportional representation. Is she? I can imagine that in her position now, maybe she's coming round. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I've got questions. I'm... <laughs> um, from the, from the position we're in now, people do talk about kind of, uh, you know, a deal that can bring the country back together or just generally about uniting the country again. Um, wh- what would it take to, to do that, given the kind of, given the divisiveness, given mm-hmm. given the damage? I mean, what are your your hopes in that direction for trying to kind of regain some kind of, not to go back in time, yeah. but to at least regain some sort of, can I, can I give you my, like, what I wish would happen right yeah, now? Yeah, okay. Okay, okay. So, so tomorrow, we will vote through an extension for 21 months, which the EU has sort of at various points floated, right? And they've said, you can have this. And uh, we would do that and then genuinely find a deal that did have cross-party consensus in the House, which would probably include staying in the customs union, staying in the single market, you know, that sort of very, very close relationship with the European Union. Um, I still don't like it because it is one foot in, one foot out. And Norway has a lot to say about, you know, if that works. And that would be actually quite... It, a lot of people who did vote leave thought that that was what they were getting. So there's an argument for actually this is delivering a version of leave. But still, I believe it needs to go back to the people because, you know, how could that be a version of leave and no deal be a version of leave? So I stand by where we are with the people's vote. Um, but that, I think, is something that could work. And then, yeah. No one likes referendums, and I think we need to also we need to also do it better. We need to have maybe a citizens' assembly, which again people have been speaking about. And at first, I kind of poo pooed it because I was like, we can't do this by the end of March. But if we have an extension of twenty one months, actually, we could we could set one up. We could properly examine all the issues. You know, something like a citizens' assembly would have probably thrown up the issues of the Northern Ireland border that we've spoken about now. And then what you end up with is advocates who aren't politicians, who are talking about the issues in a way that's really knowledgeable. We can do... I don't think you can put the referendum genie back in the bottle, but I think we need to learn how to do them better. And, yeah, I, I, that's, that's what I wish. And what question would you like to see if it did come to, to a people's vote? How, what would the options remain. be? Deal versus remain. And the deal would be...? Whatever deal at that point right. had been negotiated, yeah. Because no deal is thoroughly irresponsible... And I think Parliament at some point needs to grow a pair and take some tough decisions. And the decision should be that no deal is so catastrophic for our economy and our society that it just needs to be taken off the table. And I'm sorry if that you know, annoys some people, but I think that's the responsible thing for Parliament to do. Yeah, because there's that sort of question. Is, is there a democratic duty to offer people the option of catastrophe? No. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I would say no, but that is a sort of an... I've literally seen that argument. Who was it? Was it Gloria Di Piero was just going, even though it would be disastrous? Even though it would We're democratically obliged no. to offer them disaster. No, I, 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 felt, I felt the same. And I think we had an episode with Roz as well where she was saying sort of similar things. We were like, well, we're quite torn, you know. Like, obviously, the, the central argument of you don't put it down because you, A, cannot specify exactly what it would entail yeah. because you're going to do some exactly kind of that. deals on aviation or whatever. And also... 
you, you've reached a terrible stage as a country when you start putting down shit that's going to end you. However, the counter-argument was, unless you, if, if it is something that is held by a sufficiently high number of people in the country, which, as we've accepted, it is, then how do you justify excluding it? Now, I have to say, like, over the course, I've pretty much gone to the base of, no, I think it has to be excluded. But definitely I've had periods where I've thought, like, I totally understand the arguments for why you would have that thing on the ballot paper. You could controversially also make the argument that long term, you know, it might be the best for this country to actually crash out without a deal and really understand what is a no deal Brexit. I mean, you're a harsh nurse. <laughs> no, 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 but this is the kind of, you know, the, the addict who hits rock bottom. It's like you really just need to be. You know, this, by the way, in an alleyway. This, by the <laughs> yeah. way, it's not it's not the mainstream thinking in the European Union, but it is definitely a strand of thinking amongst some European Union officials. You know, if we rather than having Britain inside or half in, half out, kicking and screaming and constantly blaming us for everything, let them leave. Let them leave mm. on the harshest terms possible, and let's see what that actually means. Once you've tasted the bitter pill. I mean, there is no way some of these politicians are ever going to be held to account for some of their ludicrous claims, because I'm assuming that Parliament will still prevent the worst from happening. And I'm talking about no deal Brexit. So, you know, the kind of glib assertions of the Jacob Rees-Moggs, the Boris Johnsons of this world are never going to be tested, right? So they'll be able to get away with everything that they say for years to come ad infinitum. And they'll still be able to blame the European Union. They'll be able to blame Theresa May. They'll be able to say that Brexit wasn't conducted properly, etc. 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 So you can make the argument that to end this for once and all, you need to crash out on the hardest terms possible, no deal Brexit, well, that, and then only once you've tasted reality can you slowly start to make. Well, the that's way like back. sort of you know Batman letting the Joker be in charge of Gotham. Just go. Well, let's see how he does it. <laughs> yeah. go, let's see how he does like the bin collections yeah. no, and see. school funding. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it would show that the Joker was was bad at this, but also it would be very bad for everybody. Right. It would be very bad. And again, I mean, I totally understand this line of thinking, like exactly like the drunk in the alleyway hitting rock bottom. Um, but there is, again, Northern Ireland gets forgotten about this because it could, yeah. you know, quote unquote, put an end to the argument um, in Britain. Uh, but it will begin a whole new cycle of violence, almost inevitably, yeah. mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland. So even in that scenario, if, let's say, um, the UK crashes out and then rebuilds itself back up into something unified, um, the flames will have been, uh, will have set off the yeah. tinderbox in Northern Ireland. And that could be another hundred years of violence um, up there. So, you know, like this is this taste of bad medicine. Northern Ireland gets a real kick up mm-hmm. the arse, you know. Like, but I think it would also be the beginning of the end of the union. Yeah. And and genuinely, you know, we've seen polls before in Northern Ireland that say, you know, if we leave, what would you want to do? And uh, breaking away from the UK suddenly gets a big spike. And then how and the Scottish again, the SNP are actually doing very well out of this political situation either way. Mm. But, you know, if we end up wrenching them out of the EU, that's their that's their argument for another referendum for independence. It is. I mean, it's, it's just a lot more complicated than that. I mean, as it stands, just to put that in perspective, um, only 37% of nationalists want to leave the UK at yeah. this point. You know, and that's the, the entire political raison d'etre is, 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 to, is to leave the UK. Do they, do they know that? Have yeah, they no, noticed that that's like what nationalists No, they absolutely means. understand okay. that. They just don't think it's the right time. 
and right. they think that if you're going to leave um, or, or if something like that will happen if a referendum even you know let's say happens in, in 10 years it could be hugely contentious if people aren't ready like the whole idea of the Good Friday Agreement is to make sure that everyone is ready so that this doesn't cause another war like quite literally well we've segued seamlessly into talking to Tim McEnany from the Irish Passport <laughs> podcast um, so can you tell us a bit about why you why you set it up, what you wanted to achieve? Mm. Well, I suppose it was, um, there was two things, actually. Um, there was those conversations, you know, late night on cafe terraces with talking to, to people from the UK uh, with Naomi uh, about this and just noticing the absence of Ireland and Northern Ireland and the border from the, from the discussion. And then also the reaction from people we talked to um, that was understandable considering their frames of reference that this won't be an issue, that this is that you guys are a little bit hysterical about the border. Why, why do you think this is, you know, this is provincial, this is far away. Um, you know, we want to talk about migrant workers and the value of the pound, and this won't be the issue. And if it is, we'll solve it. I mean, that was very much the prevailing idea that was coming out of 10 Downing Street and therefore going into the media and therefore in people's consciousness. Um, so therefore, you can't really blame people for, for taking that tack. Uh, there was that. And then secondly, there was all the people who were applying for Irish passports. And they were quite literally um, tweeting to Naomi mm. saying, um, hi, I'm applying for an Irish passport. I have an Irish father or grandfather. What is it? I have a perfect right to this, but I know nothing about Ireland. I never learned anything about it in school. Um, I'd love just some resources to find out uh, where it is. <clears throat> and so we thought with those two things coming together, that understanding the historical and cultural context of Ireland is actually really crucial to really engaging with Ireland in the Brexit um, uh, scenario and in, just in current affairs on a global um, scale in, in general. You know, Ireland had suddenly, uh, Ireland is a small little island, you know, um, the, the entire population is six million people, so half the population of London. Um, it's tiny and yet the news kind of always keeps coming back to us, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's a strange kind of pull of, of we somehow becoming internationally very relevant and once again we're, we were shot to centre stage of all this of no doing of our own. This was another country's referendum, uh, you know, and suddenly we're the sacrificial lamb who's actually being blamed for it half the time. Well, you retweeted, you tweeted an amazing quote from Churchill, which reads, how is it that the great English parties are shaken to their foundations and even shattered almost every generation by contact with Irish affairs? Whence does this mysterious power of Ireland come? <laughs> <laughs> Whence does the mysterious power of Ireland come? I'll tell you. <laughs> There's a little late. <laughs> it's a little like Churchill's dead. He can't hear your answer, but go ahead. We're all going to have to turn in circles three times. Um, no, I'll tell you where, where the mysterious power of Ireland comes. It's from um, from people like Churchill, to be fair, um, trying to make it go away quickly and mm -hmm. with force. Um, you know, for hundreds of years now, um, Westminster has just been trying to make Ireland go away. And in particular, Northern <laughs> Ireland, they just wanted to go away. And the trying to do that using usually ham-fisted and unthinking uh, methods to do that has created the problem worse and worse and worse until it, it has reached this fever pitch of uh, actually all of our problems have been thrown in here and we've made this issue into something that we've battered so often that it's, it's ready to explode at any moment. Um, you know, Ireland shouldn't be an issue. If, if Ireland was really taken seriously, if people, for instance 
knew, you know, if people were taught in school, firstly, um, that the Republic of Ireland exists, if people like David Davis knew that the Republic of Ireland exists, which apparently he didn't. He referred to the Irish border as an internal border mm, just yeah. a few mm. weeks after Brexit, oh which is, this is what we're dealing with. He didn't realise that the UK has a land border with another EU member state. Um, when these things are understood, some of these basic things are understood, and when the government really takes Northern Ireland in particular, I mean, that's their responsibility. When it takes them seriously, these problems will go away. Well, I mean, we've spoken a lot about how, um, in some ways, you know, obviously Brexit was the the, the, the referendum uh, was the manifestation of problems that have been bubbling for sort of some time um, now in the case of Ireland in the case of Northern Ireland has this sort of the, suddenly all these the threat of all these problems coming back is that if you sort of taking the long view you know that these these sort of these things don't stay buried for long these problems and you know they're going to bubble up in one form or another mm-hmm. or is it actually things were I mean not fine they haven't had the assembly meeting for, mm-hmm. for months but you know the, the, yeah. this was needlessly done that had uh, had remain one mm. we wouldn't need to be sort of worrying you know this wouldn't be an issue uh, I mean it, it would be a different issue let's let's put it that right. way um, the like I mean it's a cliche right these problems bu- bubbling under the surface in Northern Ireland comes come back to all the time um, the issue is all these people who were alive during the troubles um, young and old they're still there you know, and the Good Friday Agreement ha- has involved a huge amount of compromise on their part, each one personally. You know, these are very real people who have decided to let, who decide to support something that lets the murderer of their brother or sister or child free. Uh, these are real people who are going to live down the street from people that they know killed their friends and families. These are compromises that are not a given, you know, and it, it, the fact that it's lasted for 20 years already is an absolute miracle. The fact that they made these compromises in the first place mm. is a miracle. Our hopes, I think, the hopes of everyone was that, like, we can get through a generation or two um, in this compromised state. Mm. And once that generation has kind of turned over, that there'll be just a whole nother society that never knew this. Those people down the street, it will mm. be their children. It will be those their children's children. We know our grandparents did this terrible thing, but we can deal with this a lot, in a lot better terms. Uh, it's such a, a, a tragedy that it's being cut short after 20 years that like it's being kicked off mm-hmm. uh, off its course when it was going I mean not not amazingly like you say the the assembly is I mean um, two years it, it hasn't been functioning now um, but there's still um, well I was about to say there's still no bums in the streets but there was mm-hmm. one there a while ago yeah. in Derry my favourite mm. story at the moment is the um, Integrated Education Foundation has just had a nomination for the Nobel Prize the Peace Prize right because yeah. of what it's trying to do to you know bring that next generation together and, and get them to understand each other and I went to go and visit one um when I went over to Belfast, and you're exactly that. You know, they are trying to create a whole new society, mm. and we're fucking it up. Uh, and they're, they're amazing. I mean, they really need to be commended, everyone in society yeah. in Northern Ireland. And what a, a pity is that they get so um, written off as nationalists and imperialists or what have you on either side. They're actually the opposite. No. They, have, they, have, they are living in a post-nation territory. Um, like They are living um, two nations simultaneously overlapped and um, totally tolerating entirely different national ideals together at the same time. It's something we should all kind of look to mm-hmm. as something that we can maybe think about of working with each other. Well, we talked about this with, with Claire Hanna about the actual, you know, the risk of, of, of sort of return to violence. And she made the point that it's not like, you know, mass Mm-hmm. Unrest mm-hmm. that it, it actually that a lot of people obviously don't want that. Most people don't want that at all. But it, it really only takes a small number of people. Mm-hmm. And do you think there are there's still a small number of people who are 
who will seize that opportunity? Well, yes, there are. I mean, we, we know that there are. Um, but it's, I think it's probably looking at it in the wrong way. It's not necessarily because there are a group of baddies somewhere who are hiding and waiting to set this all alight. It's that anything could set this off. You know, um, we had um, uh, a guest now, his, his, name is, his name is Steve, and I, I don't forgive myself now to, because I've forgotten his last name, but you can, you can listen to him uh, on an episode that we did on Derry, uh, and he put it very well. He said um, that a, a Land Rover, by mistake, running over a child could, could set this off. Like, uh, the most unlikely things could light the tinderbox in, in Northern Ireland um, because it's a domino effect, mm-hmm. because every street people are living with their old enemies. Every neighbourhood, all these um, feelings of unrest are, are already there. And if anything starts one of them off, you know, it will start the others off, it will start the others off um, because there are so many resentments that, that can be set off at once. So yes, there are people out there um, who are looking forward to this. Um, um, there, we know that. Uh, but they mightn't actually, ironically, be the problem in the end. Hmm. And lastly, could you just explain, as I mean, earlier, was, later was talking about the DUP, um, Steve Bradley, I better say his name. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> um, up, what motivates the DUP? Apart from saying no. That's in the million, in the million euro question. <laughs> like, honestly, I, do, I feel like I'm the worst person in the world to answer that question. Um, I could guess. Uh, but a lot of what motivates them, uh, it seems, is to try and resist being like me. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, the DUP have done things like um, a scrub... Uh, the Irish language of um, of a manhole cover because they it was so threatening culturally um, uh, it was the idea of debritization uh, there is a sense of uh, of fear and threat from Irish culture uh, when I say Irish culture I mean uh, from the Republic of Ireland um, uh, but of course they're Irish too and the Irish culture that's in Northern Ireland um, you know, it's unionist and it's nationalist and it's lots of things in between as well. So I honestly can't give you a, a coherent reason for what motivates them. It doesn't seem logical. And like you said earlier, what they're doing in the House of Commons doesn't seem logical. It's not the first time. They're not doing what's logical um, to their own voters either. We just had an Irish Times poll uh, last week mm-hmm. that says that 67% of people in Northern Ireland are against what the DUP is going for uh, in Westminster. That includes a huge proportion, huge majority of unionists, of yeah. people, you know, their traditional size. I mean, if you can maybe put that into an analogy of hardcore labour, you know, defecting to, to hardcore Tory, you know, and then imagine that hardcore Labour and hardcore Tory have, were, were in a 30-year war and killed each other's <laughs> families. I mean, that shows you how much they're out of touch with their votership. You know, like, it's unbelievable, but they're still ploughing on regardless. So I don't know. I really don't know what they're up to. I mean, like, nothing good, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and I just really hope all those other political voices were heard in Westminster. I think the debate would have been so different mm-hmm. had you had the plethora of other Northern Irish political parties mm-hmm. there making their case. It's such a shame that there's just one voice and people seem to think that people in Northern Ireland are represented Presented by the DUP, mm. and that you know, recoil in horror. Most people in Northern Ireland think that's true. For sure. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, Leila. There's something that we talk about um, at the live shows, where you know, because there's a crowd in front of us, we get a little bit politician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but you know, there is a sense of kind of well, what happens next, and where is all this kind of energy, which you might call sort of uh, you know, moderate. <laughs> no, the sort of the, for the sort of moderate progressive. You know, don't want to say. I mean, centrist is not the word for it, but you know, mm. kind of like there are the you know the I suppose the the general beliefs and values yeah. of Remainers. Yeah. Um, where do you see that 
going? And do you think there has actually been, because I suppose when those values are under threat, people become more passionate, Mm -hmm. that this could be in the long run a sort of rebirth of sorts of that part of the political I sincerely landscape. hope so. I sincerely hope so. And we're seeing it. It's, it's not just the Tiggers or whatever we're calling them. It's You can also see it from within the Labour Party and this movement that Tom Watson's trying to sort mm-hmm. of create from within, uh, which, you know, he doesn't even know himself if he's going to be successful. But I think he, he's already saying quite openly that he would consider leading them out. And and actually, if that happens, you've got suddenly this, this, this moment where you could have a really strong political force in the centre again that is coalescing around all of these values. And that's why I have not been anything other than just really excited by what's happened over the last few weeks with the political movements in the other parties. Because in the end, why do I do this? It's because I believe in these values. I believe in you know society that, that wants everyone to feel like they're comfortable in their own skin, where we are progressive, where we embrace you know the global world and we, you know, all these things, as you say, that as it seems to be Remainers talk about more. I think, yeah, what an incredible force that we would be if we could find a way to to harness that in some way. So I'm really excited by it, personally. We've come to the end of the show uh, on an optimistic note there, which we will try not to repeat. Mm. It's literally never happened before. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Normally there's just a kind of gloomy sigh. (laughs) But no, I feel something like hope, which I will try and choke down. Don't worry, worry, it'll be snuffed out. (laughs) Um, So let's make some more additions to our Brexit time capsule. We've got two guests today, so two things are going into the vault. Leila Moran, what's your choice of a thing we will miss or need when or if we leave the EU? The thing I will miss, and I really hope it it doesn't get to this point, but my parents live in Brussels. My brother and sister live in Berlin. Um, We are a truly European family, and... It, I, what I will miss is that I, at any point, theoretically, could get up one day and go move to be with my brother and sister. And um, I know I wasn't allowed freedom of movement because someone else took that another time. So it's really personal. It's like the ability to be with my family who aren't here in the UK but mm. are European. That's the thing I'd miss the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim. What do you put in there? Well, now, I, I know that Erasmus has been taken, but I just wanted to say quickly uh, that I'm the, I'm the Erasmus coordinator in my university, and I did have to send a letter last, last week to all those students. It's in one of the poorest parts of France, telling them that they won't get their funding to go to the UK. Mm-hmm. These, these kids, it means like, they can't go, basically. So that's, that's very sad. No, but instead, uh, I chose the European Health Insurance Card, um, which is great. I have it on me right now, you know, because I, I just travelled over. Um, I can travel from France. Um, I'm going to Ireland in a, in a few days. Keep it with me. And it, it's just, there, there it is, just full healthcare all the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll, we'll probably be looking at situations like going to America, buying insurance again and wondering about this and what, what you can get and probably paying a fortune. So that's great. It would be an awful pity to lose that. Mm. Thanks, Tim. Um, and of course, one thing about these things please. is that every time we ask, someone's got like this really deep sort of meaningful answer. And I had one and I just chose cheap comics. <laughs> well. Everyone. So I just feel more ashamed about that answer. Yeah, yeah, like every other, week I'm like, fuck exactly. it out. <laughs> That's what I picked. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll give you a do-over one week. Yeah. Um, this week's European language clip comes from Christian Fredriksen in Copenhagen, who says, enjoying your show. I hope you will continue making shows after March 29th as well. Um, this is why I also want a 21 month extension yeah. which will enable us many exciting <laughs> new merchandising opportunities maybe, maybe we can look could you put it down as an amendment yeah, exactly somewhere? right just <laughs> keep Romaniac podcast going, going. <laughs> amendment by statute <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Ak, lykkens dør åbner ikke indad. That's a quote from Søren Kierkegaard, and it says, Alas, fortune's door does not open inwards. A little bit of Kierkegaard there for you. You don't get that from Chopper. There you go. That's fantastic. Don't forget to send us your European language clips at info at We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to our special guests, Leila Moran MP. Are you going right back to the comments now? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Best of luck. Thank you. And Tim McEnany, uh Presumably people can subscribe to Irish Passport. That's it, yeah. You can look for The Irish Passport in whatever podcast app you use or www.theirishpassport.com. Excellent. Thanks for coming in. Right, so there may well be an emergency podcast at the end of this round of voting. If not, we'll see you back in the Vortex this time next week. Now here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a salute to some of our Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Stuart Adam, Ben Mule, Charlie Forrest, Dexter, possibly a serial killer from Miami, <laughs> Jessica Maloney, uh, Mrs. E. Levy, Robert Winton, Elisa Rossi, Simon Maunder, and Chris Gregory. Hello, and thanks for your support from me to Andrew Pickett, L. Boyton, Finn Bar Lucas, Stephen McLaren, Julie Crofts, Bill Crofts. We've got all the Crofts. Uh, Carolyn Lavelle, Adam Bland, Maurice Naftalin, and Simon Gardner. And hello for me to Andy Fever, Mark Herson, Julian Willis, Daniel German, Nick Ransom, Chris Dabrowski, Paul Hollingsworth, Peter Adams, Tana Pearson, and James Bolton. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Nina Schick. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.